invite you to turn to Acts chapter 18. Maybe some of you know or read in the stuff you receive in emails. This very Sunday, across Canada, many ministers are preaching an illegal message. A Canadian law called the C-4 Bill was passed prohibiting even the slight encouragement of conversion therapy. That is, if any person who is struggling with same-sex attraction or a desire to undergo a sex change, to advise, counsel, or even offer reasonable reasons to reconsider, that's outlaw. In other words... To tell people that God made them male or female and to set, that he set up sex between a natural born man and a natural born woman in the confines of marriage. That's going to be fined in Canada. We already saw some pastors getting arrested during COVID lockdowns and other real restrictions. And it all feels a little too close to home. Of course, in our own denomination, back, I, I can't remember if it was 2018 or 2017, but we, we finally split our denomination over the same sort of conversations about what does the Bible say and how we should respond to people dealing with these sorts of sins. And some might say this, just as was said back when the denomination was splitting, well, so what? Just lay off touching on that topic and... Focus on more important things like the gospel. And that's like telling a doctor, don't tell me about cancer, just praise me about all the other parts of my body that are good and praiseworthy. Jesus said that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. Jesus also says that the world hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You know, there seems to be this paradox to Jesus, to God. He, he made the world, he called it good, and he made creation to be with. He loves them. We know that for God so loves the world. But God's love isn't the world's love. It's a pure love. A purifying love, a love that combats sin, that doesn't condone it. A love that puts sin to death, that crucifies it, which can be painful seeing how it's crucifixion, instead of a love that rests and just lets sin fester. And when a king and his followers engage a world of rebels, there's going to be animosity. There might even be violence or persecution. Consider Paul in our passage today. He's coming to Corinth. He writes later on to the church in Corinth. He says, I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. Now in context of that passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul is talking about before and after that his primary focus as he approached Corinth here, was to give them the message of Jesus crucified on the cross. Having been on one missionary journey 
not to mention the places he's been thus far on the second journey, plus the ministry he's done in what would probably be best described as his home church of Antioch. All this to say, I think Paul is well-versed in giving Jesus-centered sermons and invitations. So I just wonder, in fact, I would say I lean into presuming that his weakness and fear and much trembling as he comes to Corinth may be more reference to his mental and his emotional state at the time, the time that we are examining today. As I uh, said, we're going to talk about more about this theory I have as we walk through the text. We're going to be studying Acts 18, 1 through 17 today in three parts. Teaching through tribulations, that's the first point. Then we're going to be talking about tired and needing tenacity. And finally, trials and testing. So I invite you to stand in honor of hearing the word of the Lord and we'll read our first of three sections. We'll just look at verses 1 through 8 right now. We read, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from uh, Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to visit them, and he stayed and worked with them because they were tent makers by trade, just as he was. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks alike. And when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself fully to the word, testifying to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed and insulted him, he shook out his garments and told them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. So Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his whole household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard the message believed and were baptized. Why don't we go ahead and pray? Father, this is, these are your words that you inspired to have written down for us. These are holy words that are used by you to continue to grow your kingdom, to grow us spiritually, to nourish us. They are our daily bread. So we pray that we would receive what you have prepared for us. Father, if there are avenues in our lives that are going to be pricked today, we pray for humility. We pray for receptivity. Help us to know your heart. Father, help us to know what you mean with the things you say. And Father, help us to know whenever the problem is not with you, but it's with us. And help us to be willing to submit to you, to yield to you, not because you're angry at us, but because you love us, you desire for us to thrive, you, you've designed and you've made us, you know what's best for our lives. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are grace and mercy to us, that you, because of you, our sins are forgiven. Help us to walk by the Spirit and not in the flesh. We ask and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It seems 
it's been nothing but trial after trial as Paul has started his second missionary journey. Not that trials are new or foreign to him. In fact, the trials of the second missionary journey mirror, in large part, what he experienced in his first missionary journey. However, when his second missionary journey began, at the very end of chapter 15, it starts with a a soreness. Um, As Barnabas, Paul's faithful friend who had gone with him in the first journey, Barnabas said, let's take John Mark, the same Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark. Now, this is how the first missionary journey started. But after the first few weeks in that journey, Mark went back home prematurely. We're not told why, only that Paul didn't think it was helpful or right. And so he said to Barnabas, when Barnabas mentioned that prospect again, no, he deserted us. He's got to grow up. We're not taking Mark. Now, those weren't his exact words. Maybe he was a bit more tactful, but that's the general feeling we get at the end of Acts chapter 15. So with that soured beginning, Barnabas said, well, I'm going to take him alone then, sayonara. (laughs) So that's when Silas joined Paul. Then they pick up Timothy uh, pretty quickly as they get started in their travels, but then more breakdowns start happening. We're told that God, the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit of Jesus, Trinitarian language, had been directing Paul, Silas, and Timothy slowly to Macedonia. But, for all of them, it was just a series of closed doors. A bunch of no's, a bunch of you can't do that, which had to be very disheartening. Well, so far I'm very successful at doing my missionary journey, not going anywhere. Until a vision informed them, you need to come to Macedonia. Besides the fallout with Barnabas, now it seems like the second missionary journey is having no success until they're finally told to come. And once in Macedonia, it's just been butterflies and roses, right? No, it's been arrests, there's been riots, there's been earthquakes, they've been dragged before city officials. And I just got to believe, if Paul is human, this has got to be building on him. (laughs) This has got to be hurting So that when he comes to Athens, all he had to do was see idols, statues. And we were told that at the sight of them, he was deeply disturbed in his spirit. You know, sin does that. That's what sin has been doing to Christians in our day and age. The world doesn't see sin. The world sees this is just part of my identity. Christ says, no, I died, so that doesn't have to be. I have this bad habit at times. I do these things because I think I'm looking for hope. But there are people from my childhood that I know now are part of this LGBT community. And I know at least one who has had a sex change and a few who are now gay. And every now and then, I try to find them out on Facebook. I've not been friends with any of them, not because I've unfriended them. I don't know if I was ever their friend on Facebook, but I know who they are, and I know some of their stories, and so I search them out, and then I usually end up being very depressed (laughs) because they haven't changed. They're stuck in the middle of their sins. And you know, for, for all the goodness that apparently 
coming out is supposed to do for a person and for all the warmth and well-being it's supposed to bring for members of this community. I don't know if I can name one single person in the community that I know or observe from afar that appears to be fulfilled and warm and content. Rather, they're always in and out of relationships. They're always depressed. There's always upset. And any brief perusal of their social media sites, just full of depressed posts and angry angst, reveals this. And it, I get deeply disturbed in my spirit. After this encounter, our text tells us, after Paul was deeply disturbed in his spirit and So he preached a message of repentance. Paul left Athens, the city of idols, and a renowned city in Achaia, or the traditional boundaries of Greece, the Roman name for it. And he comes to the Roman capital, 50 to 60 miles to the west, the city of Corinth. Now, if Athens was full of idolatry, Corinth was full of adultery. Um... It was Las Vegas, probably on steroids. It was full of the same sins that Canada is preaching against today. It was a very strategically placed city. It connected two seas on either side of the Greek isthmus. And then to the north and to the south, Greece's two big land masses. So it made for a very opportune place for merchants and travelers It's like a Great Lakes port city after the Erie Canal. (laughs) Um, You know, with the Mississippi going south, the Erie Canal connecting the Atlantic. And being the Roman capital, it is a metropolis. It's definitely bigger than Athens during that time. It's got all the marks of what 21st century people love to hear. It's got diversity. And amid its 2,000 population. I looked it up. That's that's barely beating Tacoma, Washington today. However, it was big in that day and age considering all the infrastructure that megacities in our day and age need. But it's got Roman officials, Roman retirees, cultured Greeks, Jewish settlers, a flourishing religion, celebrating sexuality and lust. It's got merchants and travelers and industry and slaves and It's a port city. It's importing and exporting. Corinth is like the next best thing to Rome in the Roman Empire almost. Alexandria, Egypt is probably its biggest competition, but it's like we're comparing New York City to L.A. or to Detroit or Chicago or Dallas. It's a big city. Paul shows up, though, and there, there seems to be a good reception. There he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul likely did his usual upon entering a new city. There was a synagogue in Corinth. So he went there and he likely began his preaching. And then he meets these recurring characters throughout the scriptures. Maybe you're used to hearing Priscilla and Aquila, the wife first. Probably because she is, uh, some would say that maybe she had higher social status, maybe she had greater prominence in the Christian society, or even their tent-making business, as we see that they've owned. And when Paul meets them, it seems that they were already Christians. But they were at the synagogue too. Well, we don't know if they were, but some speculate as to their already being Christians because 
of this mention of this expulsion from Rome by Claudius. Extra biblical documents say that Jews were forced to leave Rome around 49 AD because of a conflict in the Jewish Roman citizenry over one Christus, an E in the middle. That's how it was written in the old documents. Instead of an I, that's how the Latin form of Christus would be Christ. But some wonder if it's a misspelling and indeed a reference to Christ. It seems likely so. You know, Acts chapter 2 verse 10, recorded on Pentecost, some faithful Jews were visiting from as far as Rome. Peter gave a message that would have converted some Romans before they went back home. Could have been Priscilla and Aquila themselves. It could have been whoever converted, uh, whoever started a Christian community in Rome. But whatever the case, it seems likely that the couple are Christian. And it would make sense to me, considering the material surrounding, surrounding them later on in the book of Acts, that if Paul had assisted in their conversion, Luke probably would have recorded that. But Paul also joins them in their business. It says, and he stayed and worked with them because they were tent makers by trade, just as he was. See, in the providence of God, yes, he met some Christians, but he also met some people with the same trade as he. And in fact, this was rather common in that day. People of the same trade would commune together. And Paul seems to have left a home church in Antioch that may have given him some money to begin his missionary journeys. But it seems as far as he's been, where he's at now, maybe he needs to start making money for himself again. He needs to self-fund missionary endeavors. Um, he worked for his own money because he didn't really want money to get in the way of the gospel. He wasn't about to go home and ask, hey, I need more money to continue my missionary endeavors. But rather he would just rather do some his own work so he can continue his gospel work which is what he did, as we read in verse 4, every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks alike. But then we find that he eventually has reason to not have to work for money anymore. We might miss it, but in verse 5, we're told that in when Silas and Timothy had come down from Macedonia, they have been in Berea. Uh, Paul went to Athens by himself, and then he went to Corinth, and they, he was rejoined by them. Paul devoted himself fully to the word, testifying to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. First, I want to make mention that some ancient manuscripts, like those used behind the King James and New King James, state that instead of Paul devoting himself fully to the word, Paul was just compelled by the Spirit to testify to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. These are just, again, manuscript variances. It would seem more sensible that he was more fully devoted to the word preaching because it is likely that Silas and Timothy brought a financial contribution from Macedonia to him. Paul would note this in his letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 11 verse 9. So in other words, Paul didn't have to make and sell more tents. He had ample money to eat, live, board, and study to preach. He's devoting himself more and more to the word, trying to convince these Jews that Jesus is the Christ, and he's meeting hostility. 
It's becoming what has happened elsewhere in his travels. He'd, he'd in fact made so much enemies in the Thessalonica that those Jews had followed him elsewhere just to instigate more hostility to him there. We read in verse 6, But when they opposed and insulted him. Uh, Opposed in the Greek is actually a term that is used to describe an army organizing to resist. Um, Paul knows where this is going. (laughs) We know where this is going. We know what opposition looks like when suddenly you might be afraid to get up one morning to preach in the church you've pastored at because the laws above you have changed if you're in Canada. (laughs) Free speech is taken away in the dressing as hate speech. It's actually things laws like this have been hinted at in states around the U.S. And sometimes opposition and insults are a person-by-person basis, but... Other times, whether it be in the physical realm or the spiritual inspiring the physical sense, opposition is an army organizing to resist. And so Paul here takes the prophetic route. But I also think underlying the text, he fills it. So he takes the route that in fact Jesus commanded his disciples to. Jesus says, as recorded by our author Luke in his account, if anyone does not welcome you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that town as a testimony against them. Paul does something similar. He says to the opposing and insulting Jews back here in Corinth, he shook out his garments and told them, your blood be on your own heads, I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. See, Paul can do nothing else here. He's faithfully witnessed. He's laid out the case for Christ and they've rejected it. Now this is hard for people. We know it with loved ones who either downright turn down Christ or they seem to be indifferent when when they're witnessed to. Paul laments it as he writes, possibly Priscilla and Achilles' home church, the church in Rome. He says, I have deep sorrow an unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my own flesh and blood, the people of Israel. Did you hear what Paul just said? (laughs) He would accept a second crucifixion (laughs) where he dies for the guilty Jews, the rejecting Israelites. He says, if if God would go with that transaction, I'd be in in a heartbeat. So I feel like he he feels what he's doing here in the church in Corinth. Paul is angry in absolving himself of blame here in Corinth, but he's angry at their stubborn rejection more than he is at their hostility. And he echoes the likes of Ezekiel when he says, your blood be on your own heads. You know, Ezekiel in chapter 33 opens with this illustration. Suppose an army is on the horizon coming to invade. And so the watchman blows the horn. And if the horn is heard by people who shrug it off and say, whatever, there's no army coming. And then they fail to to adequately prepare. And then they die because of it. That's their fault. (laughs) They've heard the warning. They've heard the truth. And then Paul, no doubt, further offends the Jews in Corinth when he tells them essentially, whatever, you're not listening. I'll go to the Gentiles. Maybe they'll heed... The Jewish God's word, (laughs) Yahweh. 
It's, it's been said that if the truth offends you, that's your problem. <laughs> the Jerusalem Council and just experience up to this point has de- demonstrated that Gentiles are receiving Christ. Paul keeps hoping for his people. Paul himself was a staunch Jewish Christian hater, but he was converted. And he keeps hoping others will follow in his wake. But if not, he's just not going to waste breath. And that's all that we can do. We can present the gospel, pray to God that they receive it. If not, sometimes we have to move on. It's a hard truth, but it's a truth nonetheless. And it's not our fault. Sure, we might mourn their lousy decisions, but that's the vulnerability that God gives himself to, the possibility of rejection. After he's given his own flesh and blood, he's still presenting his cheek for a kiss or a slap. But then God seems to work in upside-down, inside-out ways. Many folks are put off by, especially as far as churches go, things like excommunication discipline and the tough love sort but it's interesting that luke writes so paul left the synagogue and went next door which that had to be further heartwarming for the synagogue oh the pesky paul is now holding services next door to the house in corinth uh people say that big houses of the larger or large houses in corinth could probably host anywhere from 40 to 50 people of titus justice a worshiper of god so Paul was likely invited by this guy to set up shop, as it were. But also, Paul likely wants to be in earshot of any Gentiles who were or are attending the synagogue next door and maybe liked what Paul had to say, wanted to know where he's at. Crispus, there's another name for any new kids coming, the synagogue leader and his whole household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard the message believed and were baptized. It's interesting that after Paul leaves the synagogue, one of the synagogue leaders, the Greek word would suggest that this is not just the head honcho, but one of the leaders, one of the elders as it were, he believed and was saved. And in fact, his whole household is. Now, it could be that there were just some select Jewish people hostile to Paul. And this Crispus was maybe always giving ear to Paul. But even so, there is something to be said that when God calls us to leave people in judgment and what that does to the other person, there will always be outsiders and insiders who say, that's heartless, that's cold, sure. But what else would you have be done? <laughs> when Paul is, is, is no doubt agonizing and speaking until he's blue in the face and all he ever heard was opposition and insults, it was time to leave. It's biblical that that though God made the world with words and he gave us his revealed will with words, sometimes when words fail on our behalf, he acts. Whenever Paul acted here, he made a clean break of the synagogue, willing to start his own meeting in a house next door. It's, It's leaving an impression. And Crispus is saved, and in fact, many in Corinth are saved, so the text tells us. This is the beginning of the Corinthian church. One pastor colorfully mused this is the beginning of of uh, christians gone wild because if you read first and second corinthians you find that they have their own eclectic corinthian brands of problems to address this is how they are formed 
You know, this, this law in Canada and other propositions like it that have come to the states within the U.S., it comes in part from folks who have sought conversion counseling and have had bad experiences. Uh, they'll complain, it made it worse for me. I didn't know who I was at all. I felt guilty for wanting to change sexes or being same-sex attracted. And then I just felt guiltier when I tried to talk it through with counselors. And so such things must be horrible and wrong for everyone. When the reality is, is I don't think so. For every situation like that, there are people like Christopher Yuan or Rosario uh, Butterfield. These are Christian authors who led the homosexual lifestyle and eventually found their way out into the arms of God. There are plenty of stories who have had people who had had sex changes only to regret it and go far back as they can to their God-given biology. And the point is, is, is it goes deeper and the problems are more severe than just making people feel okay with the sins they choose. You know what makes people hostile towards the gospel? What makes people hostile towards the message of a transcendent God who, who made us and knows us intimately and loves us and wants us to thrive so much that he's willing to call us out on our sin? Hostility only arises because people are so deceived they'd rather have sin over God. And I don't say that in judgment over any brand or group of people. I say that in judgment of me because I know that. People are so deceived that they would rather have sin over God. God is so polarizing, it seems. You can see it in the gospel accounts, and we're about to see it here, that his message inspires followers to do what Paul is doing. Go to great lengths, physically, mentally, emotionally, and so forth, to give his message. But then it inspires enemies to be so upset by words and preaching to wish those messengers dead. Paul knows where this is going. The Corinthian church is forming, yes, but there was a seed of the enemy in the synagogue. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ calls hostile synagogues in the book of Revelation the synagogues of Satan. Very flattering term. See, Paul's been here before. He's arrived at towns. He's run into people who violently hate him, but also people who come to salvation. Paul's been through riots. He's been through arrests and imprisonments, and he's only human. And I, I am building this up this way because out of nowhere, it seems, Paul has an encounter with God. So our text tells us. The last time Paul had a, a one was when he was called to Macedonia in the first place. But Paul's human like us, and he's not having nightly face-to-face encounters with God like Moses did. Luke is no doubt reporting on a miracle, something worth noting here in verse 9 says, one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will lay a hand on you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half teaching the word of God among the Corinthians. Tired and needing tenacity, resolve. The synagogue opponents were likely getting furious. And like I've been saying, Paul's been here before. Do you ever know what to expect and that doesn't help? (laughs) See, sometimes we say, I've been through this before, I'll survive. 
Other times it's, I've been through this before and I don't want to do it again. <laughs> and I wonder if that's where Paul's out. He, he's already come to Corinth, as he says, in weakness and fear and with much trembling. The trip's been weighing on him. It was gearing up for either another arrest or another riot or another something. But God who loves him so, God who's called him to minister to the Gentiles, God who has saved him and who is Paul's Lord, Savior, Christ, and friend, shows up and says, do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will lay a hand on you because I have many people in this city. I remember hearing this while our denomination was still together and and headed towards this split. Someone said, I don't know why we're having this huge disagreement. Why don't the conservatives just lay off? Forty years ago, it was taboo to talk about divorce in the church, but look at where we're at now. It's going to be the same situation with this LGBT thing. And if that was supposed to be taken as support for the other side or to change my mind, it was lost on me. Because I was, I'm just as saddened by prolific divorce as I am about people who are deceived and told by culture, give in to your sins here. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Some people in our day and age have been throwing around the phrase, fact checking. And it's interesting Because in a culture that largely believes or seems to communicate that everything is relative, (laughs) they still see the power in the idea of facts. These are not relative. Facts are by definition unchanging. It's just that hypocritically and with double standards, some who decide what are facts take other facts, such as about biology, and seem them as changeable. It seems that some fact checkers are okay with fact changers. Psalm 33, verses 6 through 11. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the stars by the breath of his mouth. He piles up the waters of the sea. He puts the depths into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord, and let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord frustrates the plans of the nations. He thwarts the devices of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The purposes of his heart to all generations. He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. Not until culture says differently. (laughs) Not until people who are offended by his truth, not even until people cry and claim that it's his unchangeable word that tortures them so. Instead of yielding and submitting and accepting and receiving and therefore being redeemed and saved and live a life of thriving, some of us, some people are instead yelling, rebelling, denying and rejecting and therefore living unredeemed, lost and spiraling lives. They reject the way they live in lies and they live in death instead of way, truth and life. And they do so with outright hatred and the sort of opposition that organizes as an army would. I'm talking about all sinners. I'm not just trying to point out one group of sinners. 
And Paul knows this. He's been battered and tattered by it. By the time he makes it to Corinth, he's in weakness and fear and trembling. And he needs to hear, do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent for I am with you and no one will lay a hand on you because I have many people in this city. Do you need that today? Canada's going through their own problems. We can be in prayer for that. But by, by God's grace, that's not our battle right now. But what is your battle? Where you know the scriptures and you know this dynamic of, of hostility and opposition that happens to God's people. And, but maybe it's not even this battle of rejection and hostility by the world, but it's another avenue of life where you're saying, I know God's truth in this situation, but I'm still weak. I'm still fearful. For the sick and suffering and cancer and COVID and other debilitating diseases, why am I not getting healed? Well, the Bible says it's for God's glory and in my weakness, God's grace is sufficient. Well, okay, but if I'm honest, that just doesn't help right now. Like, let's just be honest. Maybe for the strained relationships and the people who we're striving with, I think I'm being forgiving. I think I'm being unconditional with my love, but why are they not responding? How long must I endure this until death? Give them your other cheek. Walk the second mile with them. Settle with them as long as it's possible. I put up with the world until they crucified me, says Jesus. Well, okay, but if I'm honest, that just doesn't help right now, right? And I wonder if these words of Jesus for Paul can be used for your situation today. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Keep on enduring. Keep on loving. Keep on going. Do not be silent. Do not give in. Do not give up. Do not lose faith or lose heart. For I am with you and no one will lay a hand on you because I have many people in this city. I wonder if God has many people in your life that he still wants you to minister to. God has many purposes in your life as to why he prolongs it. God has many uses for your suffering for his glory and the good of others, and he will sustain you. This is what Paul needed. See, Paul's audience needed action. I'm done with you. I'm headed to the Gentiles. And some of them came around. But Paul's a believer. He just needs words. He needs God's words and he'll stay. Corinth doesn't change overnight. Paul is still planting the first church in a Roman, pagan, adulterating city amid a whole region where Paul's been persecuted and hurt. But at the word of God, Paul settles for a year and a half. Did you did you hear about COVID a year and a half ago? No. <laughs> That's how long a year and a half is. But then eventually a trial comes. There's not terribly much I want to unpack here in these final verses, but let us consider, beginning with verse 12, when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, extra biblical sources would say that Gallio became proconsul around proconsul around 51 AD, the Jews coordinated an attack on Paul and brought him before the judgment seat. It could be that Jews were acting on the newness of this guy, uh, uh, Gallio. A new Roman leader comes in. They may not know the ins and outs of Paul's interaction with the city. So they're just going to try to use that for their advantage. Verse 13. This man is persuading the people of 
the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Now, this is kind of a purposely vague accusation against Paul. Rome usually held to a law that religions in their empire were all allowed. New religions were not. So as they were conquering people and lands, so long as the, the their worship of their own religions did not interfere with Roman law, go ahead, worship. New religions, ones that Rome had not documented, ones that maybe undermined Roman rule, were not okay. So the Jews were trying to distance Paul and Christianity from Judaism and get Paul in trouble. He's teaching a new religion. This is why Paul showed up in a Jewish synagogue to argue for the Jewish Messiah in hopes that the Jewish adherents would accept. Right? Completely foreign, completely different. But, just as Paul was about to speak, no doubt on all the stuff I just touched on, all the Jewish connections, Gallio told the Jews, if this matter involved a wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, so he's as exasperated with them as much as Paul was, then it would be reasonable for me to hear your complaint. But since it is a dispute about words and names in your own law, settle it, settle it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of such things. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. The words for drive away is a humiliating, be gone with you sort of ejection. And it shows us that, that this is about a decade before Nero, who set a precedent for Christian persecution as far as Romans were concerned. But by and large, like Pilate or Gallio, they seem to could care less about what they see as theology squabbles among Jews. So he's preaching your Messiah came. What does that have to do with me? Right? Tell me about someone he murdered, stole from, some real infraction. I might be interested, but you're bringing me theology debates. Just leave me alone. Then there's this interesting debated anecdote in verse 17. At this, the crowd, some, not all, but some old manuscripts said that it was actually the Greeks here, seized Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the judgment seat. But none of this was of concern to Gallio. There is a Sosthenes named in 1 Corinthians 1.1. This is who Paul is writing with when he writes the church in Corinth. It seems likely it might be the same one. Some say it could be another name for Crispus, which was the wonderful name earlier in the passage. They're both synagogue leaders. Uh, many Romans had three names. But I'm more inclined to believe that it's probably just another synagogue leader. Uh, some have even presented the theory that maybe this was an enemy of Paul, but because he failed before Gallio, they beat this guy to, to smithereens, and that's actually what made him come to Paul. We don't know. Interesting theory. You could probably write a book about it, but... Um, in this situation, God's word proves true to Paul. He would not be touched. There were people in the city that needed saving. Now I said in that situation, we know Paul eventually was uh, eventually executed in Rome. We know that even after this took place in Corinth, Paul would experience more beatings, whippings, persecutions. But Paul still remained faithful even to the end. Because I'm a glutton for punishment, and here's how I'm going to end uh, with a story for you. Uh, because I like uplifting books, <laughs> I've been reading this book called Beat, 
which was about a woman who suffered extreme abuse, mostly from her father and was part of a cultic so-named Christian group. And from what I'm reading and gather so far, I think she lost her faith. Maybe she never even had it, but sadly was given a very warped view of faith. She says things like, if being a Christian meant my dad was the head of the household like he was, with the ability to beat us and control us, then I didn't want anything to do with Christianity. And as I've been reading it, I've actually been praying for the author that the real Jesus would show up in her life. At the same time, it's, it's that age-old paradox. Why does God allow such evil to take place? even in his name. And the only thing I can come up with so glaringly evident, but so overlooked, at least by the likes of me, and that is Satan's real too. The enemy is real too. Whatever he can do to beat people, to persecute people, to make people doubt the love of God, the grace of God, his good purposes and things he says, such as making man and woman to only exercise love and sex in the confinements of a man-woman marriage, There is an enemy out there who doesn't seem to be given enough credit. And apparently he's doing such a good job that an entire government is willing to make illegal, even repeating God's truth, if not in Canada, in the Middle East. And we live in this world and in the middle of one man's suffering, Paul, with just the stuff he's faced, he's told again, do not be afraid. Keep on speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you. You know, that girl who suffered at the hands of an abuser, I don't know why such an innocent girl was abused so much. But Christ Jesus shares with her the welts, the beatings, the bruisings, the blood, the mockery, the false accusations as he endured the cross. And he died because of the abuse she lived on. By the grace of God, I pray she meets the suffering servant who did die, but resurrected and can be with her. That God is with you today. Whatever you're facing, don't be afraid. Keep on. God is with you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, um, sometimes you bring the world of the Bible alive to us in ways we don't want to think about. Um, there is such a cultural chasm, it seems, in much of the Bible, but as we just do a little digging, we understand all too clearly some of the emotions, some of the things that people were going through. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy to Paul to show up, to encourage him when he needed it. Father, I pray that you would do the same, no matter what situations we're going through, no matter the problems we face, that you would show up in the middle of it and remind us of your good purposes. Speak to us in a fresh way, as George Fox would say, that you would speak to my condition. Father, that um, you're not a estranged God, but all your words ring true. You're always faithful. Your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And I just pray that you would be at work. Show us that you're at work. Um, We pray for our brothers and sisters who are preaching messages that could get them in trouble with the law. We pray for grace and mercy and protection. We pray for revival. Father, we don't like to think about it, but when persecution starts, that's when your church grows. 
Help us to take joy in the growth. We ask and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.